Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great podcasts is about helping Latter-day Saints like you tackle deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping these podcasts alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the programs on this podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber. Or making a donation at mormondiscussions.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussions, plural with an S on the end, dot org. Donate today and support programs like Mormon Discussion, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, Mormon History Podcast, Marriage on a Tightrope, and others. If these programs benefit you, and you want to see these continue, please consider making an annual donation starting today. All donations are tax-exempt inside the United States, and go towards keeping the podcast alive. Mormon, Mormon Discussion, discussion and, and its lineup of great programs. programs. Helping you navigate Mormonism one episode at a time. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful for this chance to sit down with you. Today, what I thought we would do is that, uh, well, let me do it this way. People ask me on a regular basis, what do I do with my spiritual experiences? And a lot of people have messaged me saying, what are your spiritual experiences? You often talk about one here or there. Uh, you often talk about this one or that one, but but you say you've had sacred experiences and we would love to know what they are and we'd love to know like what you do with those now that you are on the outside of belief in Mormonism. And, and I want to stop here and just say too, you know, having been excommunicated, I had lost my belief in Mormonism as true, uh, certainly it contains truths, but lost my belief in Mormonism as true, as the one and only path, as the way, as the ordinances being from God and having some special power to uh, distinguish me from other human beings and get me back to God. And so what I'm hoping today that we can do is talk about my spiritual experiences, talk about how I reconcile them, and maybe give you some thoughts on how you can uh, reconcile those. So let me first start by just telling you them. And there's essentially six that stick out in my mind as somewhat significant. The, the first one is I'm a 17-year-old kid. I'm in my senior year of high school. I'm working a job at uh, Perkins Family Restaurant. It's a franchise, but it was family-owned by a local family, the Schuster family. Uh, Dick Schuster was the owner. And I ended up, my mom and my dad and I and my brother, we ended up uh, moving out of our house to an apartment while my parents looked for a home to buy. And so we rented an apartment off Dick Schuster, and it was right next door to the restaurant that he owned. So he owned this apartment complex. And then he owned this restaurant right next door. And I'm 14 years old, actually probably 15 at this point. And uh, Dick Schuster encourages me to apply for a job at his restaurant. And I'm working at Perkins Family Restaurant. Great job. Minimum wage at the time was $4.25. And I quickly work my tail end off and show that I'm one of the more competent employees, even as a kid, to the point where they move me to being the baker one of three bakers in the restaurant. They move me to being a baker, and they start paying me $8 an hour. And for a, at that point, I'm 16 years old, and as a 16-year-old kid making uh, $8 an hour when minimum wage is $4.25 was, like, incredible. And so one day, uh, so that job's going fine, and one day I come out of this uh, shopping center, me and my best friend Carlos, and we go out to his car. He's 16 and driving, and I'm just about ready to get my driver's license. Uh, and there is a paper on his window, underneath his window wiper, that says, come get a job at McDonald's. And I don't know why. I just I felt impressed to go get that job. Like, I didn't need a second job. I got plenty of hours in my first job, and I'm getting paid more than any other kid in my school, probably. And... Uh, and getting paid eight bucks an hour as a as a senior in high school, and my birthday was in September, so I start my senior year 
uh, at 16 years old, and I graduated as a 17-year-old kid uh, because my birthday was on the front end in the very first weeks of the school year. And so I go to McDonald's, and I apply for a job, and I get it. They're hiring. They need somebody. I'm willing to work, so that's not an issue. And I meet a girl there, and her name's Amanda. And as I work with this girl, her and I are, you know, flirting a little bit back and forth and just getting along, getting to know each other. And I want to ask her out, but I'm, I'm a little scared. And uh, she eventually calls up my house and she uh, gets my number from, from the management of McDonald's. That probably isn't legal, but that's what she did. And they did it. She calls me up and uh, she asked me on a date and I didn't ask her. I was so scared to be rejected. I didn't have a whole lot of success with girls, and I was—I lacked a lot of self-confidence about my looks and uh, about my weight, and and so I was hesitant to take any chance. Uh, and yet, it's by taking chances that, that things happen, right? And so, this beautiful girl, she she asked me on a date, and we go on a date. We hit it off. Her dad—they they are Latter-day Saints, and her dad is eager to be a member missionary. And so as I spend time with her and her family, they are quick to invite me to church, specific, specifically her father. And I remember walking into church the first time. I walked into uh, the building and I just was excited. I don't know what it was. I just felt excited. And, and now, again, I'll stop here and say this. Now, whenever anything exuberant happens within the religious system that we are in, that religious exuberance that we feel, that exuberance which we put a religious label on, is seen as an evidence of one strength or another of the truth of that system or the goodness of that system. When I go into young men's there, the uh, young men's president and his counselors are teaching a lesson on the Godhead. It's my very first time in a Mormon building. And they are teaching that Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost are three separate beings. And they put each of those beings up on a chalkboard. There's multiple chalkboards in the room. So each chalkboard has a different member of the Godhead. And I don't have a whole lot of religious experience going into this. I, I really am not, a, I'm not from a church-going family other than for a wedding or a funeral. And as I walk... Uh, into that class and I sit down and I see those members of the Godhead on those three chalkboards, I'm, I'm struck with this thought that feels like I'm just pulling it right out of the ether. And the thought is that while throughout my life I had been taught what little teaching I had gotten, what I had been taught was that Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost are the three manifestations of the same heavenly being. I somehow understood immediately the the idea of these three being separate. In other words, I believe, like I in my mind, I'm like, I know the world teaches it this way, and I don't have a lot of religious instruction, and I certainly don't have any memory of being taught this specifically, but I believe that God, Jesus, and the Holy Ghost are three separate beings. And this experience was it was spiritual. I felt like here in this early moment, I was given some truth inside of myself about the world and how it works, and it was different than the rest of the world had related to me how it works. And, uh, and so that experience happens, and uh, following that, I'm taking the missionary discussions and I'm reading things. I mean, I'm reading No Man Knows My History by Fawn Brody. I'm going to my library in my school. I'm looking up Mormons. There's not much there. I'm going to my local public library. I'm reading the books that they have. And the book that sticks out is Fawn Brody's No Man Knows My History. And so I'm, I'm right away seeing the problems as I'm taking the missionary discussions. And I'm not getting good answers to these problems, but I realize like, oh, like there's this is a little more complicated than I thought it was. And as the missionaries are teaching me, I come to this kind of precipice moment where I'm reading the Book of Mormon and I'm also reading Fawn Brody's No Man Knows My History. 
and I'm being told by the missionaries that I can get answers from God. And I realize like for me to invest myself in this thing, I have to, I have to have some kind of communication with the divine to know, to know whether this, this is real or not. And the other thing to the listener, the, our memory really is tricky. So I'm relaying to you my memory of what this experience was like, knowing full well that my memory is distorted from the actual event. I've told this story numerous times, and we, and we know through science and through studies that the more you recall an event and the more you tell the event, the more the event, its memory of it, changes inside your head. The less you recall event, the less you talk about an event, the more stable that memory remains in your mind. And that seems backwards in some ways, but that's not how it works. And so accepting that my memory is faulty, but I still share with you my memory, and I also don't want anyone to dismiss this event or this memory simply because memories change. There's still something to this memory, and much of the way I relay it is almost assuredly the way it happened. And so I'm reading the Book of Mormon, and I have these questions from Fawn Brody's book in the back of my head, and I don't specifically remember which things weighed heaviest and which things were most easily dismissed, only that it raised questions and it raised concerns to the point where I even went to a teacher that I respected and told her as I was preparing for baptism and reading the Book of Mormon and reading Fawn Brody's book, I went to her and said, like, like after school, I said, hey, can I talk to you? I said, I'm, I'm investigating Mormonism. I know you're not a Mormon, but here's my, my issue. I'm reading this book that counters everything the missionaries are telling me, and I'm reading the Book of Mormon, and I, and I, like, I like this religious system so far. And her advice is to follow my heart, which I thought was great for a non-Mormon who probably doesn't think too highly of Mormons, probably doesn't have a whole lot of exposure to them anyway, what her advice would be. She said, follow your heart. And so I take it up with God. I go home, and either that day or a day or two after, I go home and I'm up at night, I'm reading the Book of Mormon, and I finally finish it. Because my goal was to finish reading the Book of Mormon all the way through before I was baptized. And it's one of the things people should know about me. Most Mormons don't read. And I loved reading, and I loved history, and I loved Mormonism from the very beginning. And so anything I can get my hands on, I read. Uh, The four-volume set of Encyclopedia of Mormonism, the seven-volume set History of the Church, Articles of Faith, the Great Apostasy, Jesus the Christ, uh, Mormon Doctrine, Doctrines of Salvation. These are all books that within the first year of being a member of the church, I had read. These were things I had looked at and tried to understand. But at the same time, too, when you hold a lower stage of development or a lower stage of consciousness, your brain does a really good job of filtering out the things that are disruptive. And so how much of those things uh, caused any kind of contradiction in me? Uh, Probably not much. But I'm early on, again, I haven't been baptized. I'm up at night. I'm reading the Book of Mormon. I finally finish it. And so I know what I have to do now. Now I got to take it to God. This is it. This is the final moment. I've done all the preparation. I've taken the discussions. I'm ready. But what I need now is a confirmation from God. And so I, I kneel down next to my bed and I pray. And I tell God, hey, God, you've promised in Moroni chapter uh, 10, 3 through 5, that I could get an answer from you. So here I am, like an answer. And I did it respectfully. I said the prayer with full intent to the point where I sat there, where minutes became an hour. And I end up in tears because nothing happens. Nothing happens. So I end up in tears. And uh, the next morning, I wake up, Amanda, my girlfriend, comes over, and she's, I remember this so vividly, she's sitting on the couch, and I'm sitting on the floor in front of her, and we're talking about getting ready for baptism, 
And I tell her, I say, all the commandments, no problem. I've got no issue keeping all these commandments. With the exception of the word of wisdom. And and I've shared on the podcast before, I started drinking at the age of 12. My best friend Carlos had an older brother who would uh, provide us with alcohol. And so we'd get together, me, him, and my cousin Richie. We were the three of us were super close. We'd get together on the weekends at one of each other's houses and the Carlos's brother would drop off a case of bush light and each of us would have eight cans of beer. And if there was only two of us, then we had 12. And so at 12 years old, I'm to the point where I could drink eight cans of beer and I'd be pretty, you know, pretty messed up. Um, but not, not like throwing up or, or passing out. Um, and, and so I chuckle now cause man, as a 12-year-old, to think one's doing that. By the age of 14, I'm smoking marijuana. And by the age of 16, I'm selling marijuana to, to friends at school and other people. I had a co-worker at the Perkins Family Restaurant that I would buy a significant size bag from. And then me and my cousin uh, would split it up into small little nickel bags and dime bags of marijuana and then I would sell it to other people I worked with or people at school and did that just for a short time before I kind of encountered my, my girlfriend and started off on this Mormon path. So it's not like I was slinging drugs in some kind of you know, serious fashion, but, but it is a true statement that for a short time I was selling, uh, selling drugs. And uh, so I'm sitting there on the floor... And I'm telling her about, like, the word of wisdom is going to be the issue, but it's not going to be the marijuana. It's not going to be the coffee or the, the tobacco. It's not going to be the alcohol. It's not going to be any other illegal drugs. It's not going to be any of that except for iced tea. Man, my dad made the best iced tea in the world. My dad would get a pot of water out. He'd put, you know, 10 or 12, 15 tea bags. I don't know how many, but a bunch. And he'd boil that thing for 40 minutes. And then he'd put a lid on it and just let it sit overnight. And then he'd get up the next morning and pour it all into a pitcher, straining the, the tea bags. Then he would add, you know, enough sugar probably to put us at the dentist's office. And that pitcher then, we would, as a family, we would drink that pitcher within a few days and then my dad would make more. Iced tea, so good. Sweet iced tea so good. And uh, I told my girlfriend, I said, that's going to be the issue. I'm not going to be able to stop drinking iced tea. I love it too much. It's really good. It's something that's part of my identity. The other things I could see, they were unhealthy. And I said, I could see that these other things are going to cause problems. And, uh, but this iced tea, it's harmless. And it's, it's just something I like. It's part of who I am. And immediately, just as like that thought is going from my brain to my mouth and exiting, I have a spiritual experience. And the only way I can classify it is to call it a vision. And so as I'm sitting on the ground and my girlfriend's sitting on the couch, I turn my head to the left and I look up our stairway. We live in a split level home at the time. So we had bought our house. We had moved out of the apartment complex. We had bought a home. It's a split-level home. So it's got a downstairs. Steps go down to the downstairs family room. I'm sitting in the living room, and then the steps go up to, the, to all the bedrooms. And as I look up at the stairs, it's like the top of the steps are cloudy, heavily cloudy. And in the cloudiness, I see my future family and a voice comes to me. And again, I'm, I'm seeing that this girl sitting on the couch, I get this confirmation both visually and emotionally that this is going to be my wife. And I see children, multiple children at the top of the steps in this cloudiness. And a voice comes in and says something along the lines of knock it off. This is true. All of it. All of it is true. And that sticks in my gut to this very day. All of it is true. And this experience lasts, I don't know, 30 seconds, 45 seconds. And, and let me grant 
it was a vision. I can't tell you, like, just like Paul says in the body or in the, in Corinthians, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. Like, that's honesty. I don't know whether this visionary thing that happened really occurred because my girlfriend doesn't see it, but she also sees me go from a conversation to being almost like paralyzed looking at the steps and then relaying to her what had just happened. And so I don't know what to do with it. And I don't know whether it was really there or not really there. But it, it, felt, it felt like it was somewhere in between. And so to this day, I don't know what to do with that. And I'll come back to it at the end. We'll talk about each of these when we get to the end. But I, I go forward. I get baptized into the church. And it's, it's almost assuredly now in this very moment here, as I'm talking to you, it's striking me how much that would have given me power to set some of the critical material aside. It would have given me an assurance that the critical material uh, isn't true. And hence, I would have had some ability to uh, just like set it aside and just move into Mormonism smoothly. And so that's the first experience. Shortly after being a member, uh, you know, a year in, I'm ordained an elder. And sometime around my ordination as an elder, I'm at the church one day. I'm in the elders quorum presidency. I don't remember if I'm a secretary or a counselor, but I'm one or the other. And being in the elders quorum presidency, I'm at church for some responsibility. And we get a phone call at the church that there is a lady at the hospital who's from out of town. She's Mormon. She ended up having some kind of a medical emergency and she's at the hospital. And I am at church and there's other people there. And one of them is a man by the name of Rick Borda. And Rick was just one of these guys that was just always willing to, to help, always willing to, to do a service for someone else, really loved people, really vibrant personality. Rick ends up dying years later, really, really young. Um, and I don't, you know, when I say really young, life means so much differently now that I'm 40. Rick was probably 55, 50 years old, somewhere in there when he passed. But at the time, you know, he's probably 40 and uh, he's at the church. I'm, I'm 19 years old. And uh, Rick right away says, Hey, I'd be happy to go to the hospital to give this lady a blessing. And, and I right away jumped in and said, I'd love to go with you. And so on the way there, we were talking. I said, look, I'm new. I don't even know what I'm doing. I said, if you don't mind, I'll anoint with the oil and you can give the blessing. I think I can get by not screwing that up. And so we get to the hospital and there's just this lady in this room and she's barely conscious. She's got tubes hooked up everywhere. She's on oxygen. She, she looks, I mean, I, and, and, and again, maybe part of this episode is just telling you a lot of other things. But my mom was a, a nurse's aide and then an LPN at a nursing home. I hate hospitals. I hate nursing homes. To be honest, I have a phobia of old people. And it's not bad. I can deal with it. But, but if I run into a, an old person at a nursing home, I start getting anxiety. Because I would go into nursing, a nursing home to visit my mom. My dad would take me to visit my mom, take her lunch, to just visit with her, you know, when he was out and about. And I'd walk into this nursing home holding my dad's hand and the wing my mom worked on, there was a man who had, you know, late stages of dementia or something to the point where what he did all day long was make barnyard animal noises. He would moo like a cow. He'd cluck like a chicken. He'd make goat noises, whatever it was, all these farm animal type noises. And it scared the hell out of me. And so I've always had this just, ah, uh, this just anxiety over old people in hospitals or nursing homes. And I've had other experiences which weren't good. I've had, when we've gone as, as members of the church to the nursing home to sing Christmas carols, I've had an old man with dementia literally come after me to fight me because he thought I was having an affair with his wife. And this is in the span of like a 20-minute uh, excursion in his wing of the nursing home to sing Christmas carols. 
So uh, needless to say, as that man's coming towards me to fight me, I'm still in my head going like, I hate old people in nursing homes and I don't want to be there. And uh, we sh- were in this room and this lady, she's not old. She's not old. She, uh, she's relatively young, but she looks so sick. And I've never, I've never seen someone this, what, I, what appeared to me this close to death. And I forget what her medical issue was, but it, it was serious. And so I looked at her and I thought in my head, like, thank God I'm not blessing her. Because I would be scared to death to say anything positive. This lady's going to be gone in a few hours. And so I anoint her head with oil and Rick lays his hands on her head and I join with him. And we bless this lady and he blesses her that in a few days she shall arise and return with her family to go home. And he closes the blessing and we leave. I come back with the missionaries two days later. I walk into the hospital, go to her room, and there she is packing up her bags with her husband and their little girl, and she is going home. And I, again, the experience itself, what a, what a testimony builder in a young 19-year-old who is looking for this thing to work the way they say it works. The next thing that happens is my grandfather gets cancer. My grandfather got lung cancer. And my grandfather was kind of an ornery cuss. He beat his kids. He was unfaithful to my grandma multiple times. Drank a lot. A lot of dysfunction. But, for, but through all of that, his, his kids loved and respected him. His wife loved and respected him. And I could never quite understand it as a grandkid. I had all this animosity towards how they operated, towards how he operated. And, uh, but every Friday, and I, and I love my grandpa. Like don't, like, don't misconstrue that. I loved my grandpa. But I heard these stories, and I saw how he acted And there was also a level of animosity towards him for how he treated those he loved. And every Friday, we would go over to my grandpa's house. At this point, I'm a young adult. I'm 22, 23, 24, 25, you know, all the way kind of through my my 20s. And uh, in fact, I think I maybe, maybe I'm a bishop when he dies, or at least a counselor in the bishopric. And that happens around 27 when I'm a counselor in the bishopric, and 29 when I'm called to be the bishop. So in my early 20s, every Friday, we go over to my grandpa's house. I would race home from work. I would speed, race home to my grandfather's home. And in his backyard, all the lawn chairs would be set up. And all of my aunts and uncles and my cousins, we'd all sit around on Friday and just shoot the breeze. Just talk about sports and politics and you know whatever else is going on in the world. I treasured it. Man, what an incredible experience. My, my dad's side of the family, we are so close that way. Just spent so much time around each other. Like I, my grandpa lived in town. My cousins all lived in town. Like we saw each other essentially once a week, most of the time. And, and at worst, once a month or so, we'd run into each other doing stuff. And so I'm, my grandfather, like there's this really cool tribal family thing happening and my grandfather comes down with lung cancer and he fights it he he gets treatment he does the chemo the radiation all that kind of stuff and the lung cancer goes into remission he was stage four and it it goes away he's like one of the miracle stories right only to have it come back a few years later in his brain and then he gets brain cancer and uh with brain cancer, things start to move quickly, and it is, it is obvious that, that this is not going to end well. My grandfather is an atheist. My grandfather has no belief in God. He sees God as a useless thing. And uh, he made it clear to my grandmother that he didn't want a religious funeral. He, he said, I'll be damned if I have a religious funeral. 
said, just bury me, say a few nice words, and move on. And two days before he dies, he has this experience. And I, I only have this now secondhand from my grandmother, and now you're getting it thirdhand from me. So again, I know full well that stories change as we play the telephone game. So memory is its own problem. And then now we go from person to person and stories become less reliable. All the things I've learned from critical thinking, right? And so my grandfather has this experience and he tells my grandmother and my, and I actually have a third hand because my grandmother then tells my father and my father tells me. But my grandfather had a brother. His brother's name was Kenny. My, my grandfather had a father who was essentially absent. And so my grandfather, being the oldest of the four brothers, looked after his three siblings. And Kenny was his youngest brother. And he loved Kenny, loved him, loved him. And Kenny, when he was 19 years old, got killed in a car accident. 19 years old, his life taken from him. And he dies in a car accident. And here's my grandfather, 70-whatever, 74 years old, and he's got brain cancer, and he's only got a few days to live. And he's in his room by himself, and suddenly Kenny, 19 years old, 40-whatever years ago, 50 years ago, Kenny comes into his room as a 19-year-old manifestation and says he's there to help my grandfather travel to the other side when the time comes. He's visiting my grandpa and telling my grandpa that time is close and he's there to help him get to the other side. My grandfather immediately tells my grandmother when this is over and says, you can have a religious funeral now because my grandmother had wanted it. My grandfather says, "I, I know now that there is something. Kenny just came to visit me and just told me he's here to help me get to the other side. And uh, my grandfather says, you can have a religious funeral now. I'm at my grandparents' home two days later when he dies. I'm there when the death happens. One of the most traumatic and one of the most fondest memories I've got. My grandfather is laying on a bed ridden with cancer. He is unconscious. He is rasping. His breath is just gasping for air. His breaths are, are work. It is work. Like any second you think, like, that's it. He can't do this anymore. He's done. And his wife and his children are around him at the bedside in the living room. And some of his children are just like telling him, Daddy, Daddy, go be with Kenny. Daddy, just let it go. Go be with Kenny. And this went on for hours. And and I, you know, I'm there at six o'clock. And this goes until like one in the morning when he finally lets out his last breath. And I remember my dad standing by the bedside while the rest of the kids walked away. Like, okay, he's, he's gone. They make their final peace with him and they walk away. And there's, there's my dad. And, 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 and I'll say here, my dad is like one of my heroes. My dad has his shadows and his flaws like anybody else, but my dad is so damn solid. One of my heroes. I've seen my dad cry twice in my life. Twice. And, and sometimes people say that as if it's not a good thing. Uh, I don't know how to explain it, but with my dad, it was a good thing. My dad is like a soft human being, and yet somehow like he also understood he needed to be strong. And so I only saw him cry twice. And this was the third time he just stood by the bed. He was like a ghost of himself. He, he was like almost paralyzed, just standing there, nothing for minutes upon minutes. It had to have been 10 or 15 minutes. He just stood by the bed. No, nothing, no emotion, no anything. And I couldn't, I couldn't take it. I couldn't watch my dad do that. So I go into the backyard uh, of my grandparents' home and my dad shortly thereafter walks through the back door. And he puts his arm around me and he says, son, people can't comprehend how much a father loves his son and how much a son loves his father. 
And in that moment, I realized like he's talking about both his relationship to his dad as well as his relationship to me. So my grandfather gets this visitation and again, he's got brain cancer. We can, we can blame it wherever and we'll come back to this again at the end. But for him, it was one of the realest things my grandfather had ever experienced. It was dead serious to him. I'm serving as a bishop of the Sandusky Ward, and we decide to do a nativity scene, a live nativity scene at our ward building. We create flyers, we create uh, posters, we, we put out advertising like in the newspaper, uh, we, we called the local newspapers to let them know. We, were, like, we, we did all we could as a ward, in ward council, trying to make this thing a success, make this thing go well. And so the, the day comes, it's you know a week before Christmas, two weeks before Christmas, something like that. And we're doing the, the live nativity scene. And as a bishop, I'm just so proud of our youth and those involved and we are right next to the road, obviously. Our building is on this road. And this road is, you know, it gets a little bit of traffic, but not a, not a ton. And it's, it's cold out. Like, it wasn't so cold. And then suddenly, like, the temperature drops a little bit. And suddenly, there's a car that is maybe, you know, 100 yards away going over an overpass on this road. The main highway in our city runs underneath this road. And so there's a little overpass and suddenly this car loses control and it crashes into the barrier that uh, keeps you safe from going over the road down into essentially this ravine, which then leads to this highway that runs underneath. And so me and another guy, uh, Billy Torres, we run uh, to go see if these people need help. They are crashed into the metal side of the guardrail on the side of the road that keeps them from essentially just going right down the hill into the ravine. And they're crashed into it, and the rail is damaged, the, the guardrail's damaged, and they're kind of hanging over the cliff. Um, and it looks precarious. And so the two of us get up there, and we go to like help them. Like They roll down their window or whatever, and we're like, look, stay in there for a minute. Let's think about this for a second. And we're, we're taking in the situation. Their car looks like it's borderline going to go over. And we want them to be safe. So we're suggesting, look, how about you open your driver's side door and you both come through the driver's side door and we'll take you to safety. What had happened, by the way, is that when the temperature dropped, it had rained and the temperature had dropped and this overpass was colder than the rest of the road and it had frozen. It had become like a sheet of ice super slippery and so they open the door and we're telling them like look why don't you come through this door and we'll pull you here into the road and let's get you let's get this to happen quickly before before this vehicle just goes another three inches and goes down the ravine and uh as we're beginning the doors open as we're beginning to like reach towards them to grab their hand another car starts to come and the other car's coming and we realize immediately, like our brains are in action. And we realize immediately like, uh-oh, this is going to be ugly. And this next car comes and it starts to lose control. And it's, I don't know, 40 feet away at this point, 50 feet away. So me and Billy, we, we immediately, just instinctively step over the guardrail that's damaged. We step over the guardrail. So we're on the other side of the guardrail because it's the safest space to be with, with four seconds to go before we end up getting hit. And so we step over the guardrail on this overpass with one car already kind of hanging over the edge. And this other car comes, and these people, like, were half out. Like, we grab their hand, they're half out, we let go of their hand, we step over the rail, and this car comes and it hits the first car, sending it all the way down the ravine. Now, it doesn't flip. It, luckily, it just slides. It just slides, but it goes 200 feet down this ravine. And this second car then bounces off, hitting the other side of the road before he finally gets control and is able to stop. 
And this guy gets out of his car. He thinks everybody's dead. He, he, he is certain he has killed me and Billy Torres. He is certain of it. We are, if you take your hands and you form a wedge, we are as close to these two cars, if each hand represents a car, we are as close to these two cars as one could be. And they, they essentially hit each other and bounce off various directions, leaving us square dab in the middle within inches of where all this happens. And, and a thousand things could have happened that day under those conditions, and 950 of them end with me and Billy Torres dead. No ifs, ands, or buts. One of the scariest moments in my life. And luckily, the people going down the ravine, they were fine. Their hearts are racing. Our hearts are racing. The guy thought he had killed everybody. He, could, he said he could see that he was heading right towards us. But rather than hitting us or the rail running into us, instead... He clips the other car first and bounces off, leaving us right in the middle of the two vehicles going off in various directions. Scared the hell out of me. Uh, grateful, like, like, again, we can call it coincidence, but in the moment, it felt like a tender mercy. It felt like a brush with death. And you don't realize like how quickly something you think like you're just in a situation helping something and how quickly something can escalate and your entire life can be gone. Life is precious. The next story, I'm, I'm, I'm a bishop at this time too. And as a bishop, you obviously have everyone in your ward kind of on your mind. You know what everybody's thing is that they're working on or concerned with or worried about or burdened by. And uh, serving as a bishop, you're, you have these goals for people. You want people to, to accomplish things and to be healthy and happy. And so one of the things that uh, you, know, you obviously as a bishop want, and, and as anybody in the church who's believing you want, you want your members of your ward to, to be eternally sealed in the temple. And we had one family, the, the Browns. And the Browns, uh, inactive off and on, and, you know, certainly have their issues. And yet, like, I really like, there's just certain people you're, you're attracted to. Like, you like them. They're good people. And you, you, you like, you sense, like, look, man, these, they're just living out the human experience. And it comes with challenges. But these are good people. And so the Brown family, they were uh, in one of these spurts where they're back at being active again. And they're committed and they're, and they're, having callings and they're doing the Mormon thing and they're working to go to, towards the temple and uh, they finally have the date set and another family in our ward, the Weimers, are going to take them. And so the, the temple in Ohio is in Columbus. We lived in Sandusky, so the temple's two hours away, two hours and five minutes, two hours and ten minutes away. And so the Weimers take the Browns to the temple. They stay overnight it allows these, these two to be endowed one day and then sealed the next. And, uh, and again, as a bishop, I've got everybody on my mind. And, and there's also times, if I'm honest, I don't have anybody on my mind. Like, I've got my own life going on, right? And so I'm not particularly focused on this family. I'm not, it's not like I'm worried or they're constantly on my mind as, as, as being like dominantly taking over my consciousness. And so I'm, I go to bed one night when this is happening, when, they, when they're at, you know, in Columbus, Ohio, this is all going on. I'm in my bed and I'm sleeping. And around 3 a.m., I'm nudged awake by something. I don't, I don't know what to even call it, but I'm nudged awake and I sit up in bed and I have this thought. It's in my head. It's like, you need to get out of bed and you need to pray for the Brown family. And... At this point in Mormonism, I'm, I'm committed to, to being not only the best Mormon, but I, I, want, I want God to be able to utilize me. And so I sit up in bed and I have this thought. And so I get out of bed immediately and I go to the foot of our bed and I kneel down and I start praying. Dear Heavenly Father, you've impressed me to pray for the Browns. I don't know why, but here I am. Here I am praying for them. 
And my, my doing this disturbs my wife enough that she wakes up. And she's like, what are you doing? And I said, Heavenly Father just woke me up and asked me to pray for the Browns in our ward. And she says, okay. And she goes back to sleep. And I get done with the prayer. And I go back to bed. I get up the next day. I'm not even, I don't even remember like it. it. I'm not like thinking about it. it. It happened in the middle of the night. And I've moved on with my day. And I'm you know, doing my work and all that stuff. I get home. And around you know, 6, 6.30, I get a phone call from Brother Weimer. Brother Weimer says, hey, Bishop, um, you know, we took the Browns uh, to the temple. And, of course, we stayed overnight. And I've got good news and I've got bad news. And I said, let's start with the bad news because I'm guessing that happened at 3 o'clock last night. And he said, Bishop, how'd you know? And I said, because Heavenly Father, I don't know what happened. I don't know what you're going to tell me. But I know that Heavenly Father woke me up at 3 a.m. telling me to pray for the Browns. And... Uh, Brother Weimer proceeds to tell me that Sister Brown had a medical emergency right at that time. Like, I don't want to say I prayed at 3.07 and that's when the emergency happened, but I will say I'm praying around 3 a.m. and the Browns had a medical emergency around 3 a.m. And and so I, again, sitting here right now in front of you, I don't know what to do with that. But one of the things that's changed with me is I don't feel a need to do anything with that. And we'll get to that in a moment. The last uh, experience is as I'm having my faith crisis, I am in, right in the midst of turmoil. I'm in the midst of knowing like my faith is coming apart at the seams. And in Mormonism, this has repercussions. In Mormonism, we are told that to be an eternal family, we cannot have one of us become an apostate and lose their testimony and leave. And again, I'm sleeping one night and I'm wrestling with my own faith transition, my own growth and development that no longer fits cleanly inside my religious system, my tribe. And I have a dream. And this dream is one of the more vivid dreams I've ever had. I'm in my car. I know in my head my family is already at the airport. They are going to fly to Salt Lake City. And I'm at home and I'm supposed to meet them there. And I can't get my car to start. And I'm having a panic attack. And this is all in a dream. I'm having a panic attack because I can't get my car started. And I realize like if I don't get my car started and if I don't get my butt to the airport, then my family is going to get on the airplane and they're going to go to Salt Lake City without me. And and like finally I get the car started. And so I head off to the airport and my car breaks down. My car breaks down. It can't go any further. And I am emotionally distraught in this dream to the point where in this moment, I finally I wake up and I'm in tears. And this dream feels like it's spirit, like it's given from God. Like the message is clear. You're not going to be able to be with your family if you can't figure this thing out, if you can't fix this. And yet I can't fix this because the further I go in this rabbit hole, the further it goes. So it's in this moment where like, maybe I can put this back together, but let's keep reading and let's keep studying and let's keep thinking. And the more I do that, the more it falls apart. And yet there is this spiritual dream, this vision in my sleep and it feels so real. And so it, it pushes me to hold it all together with a death grip. Just a little longer, please. Just a little longer. So those five experiences, six experiences, those six experiences all feel super spiritual in the moment. And so what do we do with those now? What do we do with things like that? Praying about the church, let me start there. Praying about the church. I was told it was all true. That was, that was part of my experience. I can't give that back. So for the apologist, for the defender of the church who wants to say, look, Bill, you had a spiritual experience. You were told the church was true. No, I was told all of it. All of it being what I was being taught by the missionaries. All of it being what I was reading from faithful sources. That was the impression that was inside my gut. 
as that was happening. All of it. Guess what? All of it wasn't true. So whatever that experience was, it wasn't fully truthful. The blessing in the hospital, people who are sick get better. In fact, most people who are young and relatively healthy who get sick get better. My grandfather, he sees his dead brother. I don't know. He's got brain cancer. He's two days away from dying and he has massive tumors in his brain. But that experience also doesn't speak to the truth of Mormonism. It only speaks to there being something more after this life. The car crash? Man, we were just in the right spot at the right time. Sometimes you get lucky. Sometimes you're in the right right spot at the right time. The dream about my family, my wife, and my children going to Salt Lake City? Man, I was under a lot of pressure at the time. Like when I, I, I take these things seriously, they weigh on me. Our brain does go about trying to resolve our anxiety and often tries to help us sort those things out through dreams. And then for me, the biggest one was being a bishop and woke up in the middle of the night. That feels like a Mormon experience. I'm in a Mormon context when I have this experience. I am the bishop. If God is going to tell somebody to pray for this family, why not the bishop? But on the other hand, whatever mystery there is in the universe, whatever, whatever effect we have thinking good thoughts about each other, or even praying for each other, surely that mystery in the universe is going to look for those who are most aware most sensitive to those connections who else could he have woke up that would have listened and so the question becomes like is there a god and is mormonism true and i take these experiences and they no longer have to mean anything because several thoughts come in at this point one of them is that as a believing mormon do you take seriously the spiritual experiences of those inside other religious systems that point to the truth of their system? And the answer is no, you don't. You don't. You write them off. You don't, you don't take them seriously. You, you assume they mean, like, like you might say, like, look, I'm not going to take that away from that person. I'm not going to judge whether their experience was valid or not. But you also recognize, like, in your heart of hearts, you're like, yeah, but they're probably misinterpreting it. That's probably not what it means because I know my system's true and theirs isn't. So if somebody has a spiritual experience inside the Jehovah's Witness faith that is a testimony to them that their faith is true, you as a believing Mormon, you must dismiss it. You have to discount it. You have to figure out some way in your head to go like, like that's great for them, But inside my gut, I know that that experience really isn't what they thought it was because my experience is true and both of them can't be. All people, let let me rephrase it, all religious systems have people within them who have spiritual experiences. And when you have an, when you have a spiritual experience inside the context of your religious system, you assign contextual meaning to that experience that speaks to you about the truth of your religious system. To do so is human. There have been a million religious systems across the expanse of time and space on this planet. Cro-Magnon man, Homo, you know, Homo erectus, they had religious systems. They had spiritual experiences inside their religious systems. And there are reasons why our brains lean towards having spiritual uh, experiences and what that does for us as human beings. My suggestion to any of you, go read the book Sapiens. Go try to understand why human beings have the experiences they have. And so now I don't need, like I don't, I'm not, I'm not wrestling with these experiences anymore. I don't sit up anytime anymore and go like, man, what do these experiences add up to? Uh Uh-oh, I made a mistake. Mormonism is true. I don't do that. I had spiritual experiences within my religious constructs, just like every other human being has the ability to do, and many do. So is there a God? 
I don't know. My brain, knowing the data the way I do, my brain says like, eh, probably not. Doesn't seem to be evidence of that. Doesn't seem to be evidence of that. And so if I'm hooked up to a lie detector test and I'm told if I answer, if I answer and my answer is lying, I'm going to be shot and killed. And they say, is there a God? My answer is no. My answer is no. But my brain doesn't work in binary ways. My brain compartmentalizes pieces and parts. So while there is a chunk of my brain that goes like, no, there's no God. I'm an atheist. I also recognize like that also doesn't fully explain me. I'm huge in having conversations on the mystery of the universe. I'm huge on recognizing that spiritual experiences, not knowing exactly how they're produced and recognizing it probably is a product of the brain, but maybe it's the product of something else, or maybe it's a combination of the two. Like I'm open to there being mystery in the universe and I find atheism boring. Not that it isn't true, I find it boring. And so I'd much rather play in the space of my brain where it likes to ask the big questions and talk about the big things. And so for instance, if you want to be walked back into the possibility of there being a God, now a God who nonetheless is only an observer, but who is our creator. If you can go back 10 billion years and the algae in the ocean, which is our ancestor, the algae in the ocean, the very first semblance of something alive. And that algae, if you fast forward 10 billion years to now, you and me, we are the descendants of that algae. We are incomprehensible to that algae. We are incomprehensible to it. And now we fast forward another 10 billion years. And whatever there is, whatever human beings transform into and it can be it can be way more than one thing whatever it is that human beings transform into it will be incomprehensible to us incomprehensible to us now assuming that process played out on some other planet and started a hundred billion years ago can you see how whatever that thing is that is incomprehensible to us might choose to do a science experiment because we humans like to do science experiments. Can you see that, that being, whatever it is, incomprehensible to us, that species of beings taking some algae, finding an inhabitable planet, putting it into the oceans, and starting the process all over again somewhere else here on planet Earth, and then sitting back and observing how that works itself out. So when we say like there is no God or there is a God or there's nothing or there's this bearded man on a planet near a star named Kola, like we have to get comfortable with all the possibilities. And once we begin to thrive and get excited about the questions instead of the answers, and that's where I'm at. The answers no longer matter. They really don't. Like if they come along, great. But as long as they're unknown, I'm not going to stress about the answers. What I love today are the questions. And so, yes, I've had spiritual experiences. And yes, if you want, you can see those as pointing towards the truth of Mormonism. But that isn't what they have to mean. They were spiritual experiences that all religious systems have people who have them. And even atheists, even people in meditation who don't believe in God, even people who are doing psychedelic uh, drugs, people have spiritual experiences. So the moment you decide your spiritual experience, no more points to the truth of the context at which you have that experience than anybody else's spiritual experience points to the truth within the context that they had it, you can begin to let go of what it has to mean, and you can just accept that this is the way human beings do humanity. This is the way human beings do the human experience.
So there they are. There's the sacred experiences I've felt. Make of them what you want. Because each of you will interpret them based on your context. Some of you will see them as telling me that the Mormon church is true. Others of you will see this as functions of the brain or coincidence. But we all see through a glass darkly. Until next time, this is Bill Real on Mormon Discussion Podcast. May the Lord warm your shoulders. Say